Good morning and welcome. Really glad that you are here this morning. Pray that the Lord will use our, our time together. Uh, if you're here and you're in Christ, that he would use our time together to uh, bring encouragement and challenge and conviction where it's appropriate. If you're here this morning and uh, you are far from God or skeptical of this whole church thing, pray that you would find a home, that you'd feel comfortable here, that you'd meet some great people, shake some hands, and uh, get to know those that are around you. We have a ton of great people in this church, and uh, really thankful for that. We, we have a few bad apples as well. Um, if you'll see me after the service, I'll point out who the bad ones are so you can avoid them. But other than that, you're in great shape. Meet some people, make yourself at home, drink some coffee, no pressure. Love it that you're here. We are going to jump in to the book of Obadiah this morning. I'm going to give you a little extra heads up to find this book. Um, may require pulling apart some pages that are still stuck together. If you haven't journeyed through this terrain of the scriptures, if you're in a small group at TCC, then you were hopefully exposed to this book already this week, so uh, perhaps you can find it. We're going to spend a good bit of time over the next uh, 12 weeks, with the exception of Easter Sunday, which will be here before we know it, uh, looking at the 12 books, the, the minor prophets in our, in our scriptures. Uh, this is uncharted territory for me as a preacher, uh, as well as, I would guess, for most of you as hearers. But this is going to scratch a really felt need for many of us in the room who profess faith in Christ. Once we um, die and go to heaven and cross through the, the pearly gates and do the greeting line of folks that await us on the other side, we're going to do really well when we get to Peter and Paul and Luke. We'll shake their hand and know a good bit about them. But you're going to hit like Amos, Obadiah, Nahum, and they're going to say, so how'd you like my book? And you're going to be totally clueless, all right? So this is going to serve you, protects from some awkwardness when you get to heaven and meet Amos. You've at least got an answer for it, all right? So that's a really, really good thing. These books are tucked away at the back of the Old Testament of our scriptures. And let's just do a quick run-through to familiarize ourselves with where we are in the biblical story. If you're new to the story of the scriptures, I want to catch you up to speed on, on where these books fall. And if you're familiar with the story, hopefully this will remind you of some placement. We, we believe here at Cherrydale and broadly as evangelical Christians that God created all things, that the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit spoke all things into existence, the pinnacle of which, the, the height of his created handiwork being fashioning image bearers. Body and soul fashioned by the, the hand of God, not, not to be um, mirrors that simply look back up at God as if God's staring at his reflection in a mirror ping-ponging back to him, but rather uh, outwardly facing mirrors, tilted mirrors, as it were, that the image of God would reflect from heaven down on these image bearers, which would then reflect his image, his glory, out to the world, that the earth would be filled with the glory of God, as it were. That, that's what we believe that, that God did. 
and gave them an abundance of provision and care from the hand of God so that they would be able to do that, that task, that they would be able to glorify God, to fill the earth with his glory. But instead of reflecting the glory of God, these created image bearers, Adam and Eve principally, stepped out from under God's rightful authority, usurped his authority, doing the one thing that he had told them was off limits. They sinned, they broke God's law, and as a result, that mirror, that tilted-out mirror, gets shattered. It's as if you take a, a mirror and throw a big rock in it. The image of God, the reflection remains, but it's broken, it's fractured. And as a result, rather than radiating out to the world the image of the glory of God, we radiate out all kinds of sinful stuff that permeates our world. And I don't have to convince you that the world we live in is really messed up. And we believe that this traces back to Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. And that in Adam and Eve's sin, we all sin. We're born inherently sinful. We're born shattered mirrors, wrongly reflecting the glory of God. But, but God, the story of the Bible doesn't stop in Genesis 3. God, because of his grace and love, chooses a people for his own possession. He, of his own intentionality, claims a people, specifically in Genesis 12, we see the story of Abraham, where God calls Abraham to himself, enters into a unilateral covenant with him, says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, I'm going to do great work in and through you. Here are the things that you are now to do because I have chosen to love you. Abraham leads this successive lineage of people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this great nation emerges of people that God has called back into right relationship with himself. The story in the end of the book of Genesis ends with this people captive in slavery in Egypt. Not exactly what you would expect from God's chosen people, but God at the beginning of the book of Exodus leads them out of slavery. He breaks the shackles of slavery, delivers them miraculously in Exodus 13 through 19 from slavery in Egypt frees them and calls them to be his people, to go to his land, and to live under his law. To these people that he's redeemed, that he's broken free, he gives his law in Exodus 19 and 20. He says, as a result of the fact that I love you, here's then how you are to live, so that you once again rightly reflect my glory out to the world. Here's my law. He also gives them the, the, the sacrificial system, he says, here's the way that you're going to approach me rightly. Here's the sacrifices that I demand. These uh, instructions fill the latter half of the book of Exodus all the way up till Deuteronomy. We see the people of God wandering towards the promised land. You guys that have been around TCC for a while, you remember the story. They wander close to the promised land, send the spies in, cop out, disobey God, and God judges them 39 years of wilderness wanderings that follow. God then brings this people back to the southeast side of the promised land where they take the land. Joshua leads the people of God to take the land. First conquest is there at Jericho. You guys remember the story, circling the city. God miraculously gives the land, this piece of property, to his people where they're supposed to set up shop, live in obedience to God, worship him through the sacrifices, and live as tilted-out mirrors reflecting God's glory to all the nations that are around. They are horrific at doing this. I mean, time and time again, they're just failures. Uh, led by the judges first, guys like uh, Gideon, that lead the people, give care to them in their 
place on the land. God, throughout this deal, is warning them, hey, bad things are going to happen if you don't obey me. The thing that I did to the people there that I kicked off the land, I'm going to do to you if you, don't, if you don't obey me. The people don't obey. They continue to rebel. They look at the nations and they say, we want a king like the nations. We want a king and a ruler over us like the nations. So the first choice in the threefold kings is Saul. Starts really good, looks like the guy that's going to do the job, that's going to usher them into being faithful and obeying God. But by the end of Saul's leadership of the people, he is a train wreck, an absolute failure, right? So God raises up the least of these from the people, the one that nobody would have chosen, King David. And here it looks like David's going to take what Saul didn't do. He's going to first formally usher the people of God into rightful obedience to God. And David does some remarkably good things, but the same thing is true for him. He's a a failure. He disobeys God. And so God says, I'm going to allow your son, Solomon, the third of those kings, I'm going to raise up Solomon. He's going to build my temple. He's going to lead the people. Solomon, again, has some really good marks of obedience, but he does some horrific things. He's an idol worshiper. He's got about a thousand wives, which I can't imagine. I mean, just an absolute train wreck waiting to happen, right? And God says, no, it's not going to be you either. And in fact, once you die, I'm going to take this people that are on the land and I'm going to fracture it. And this is exactly what happens. The people of God fracture. In civil war, one led the northern tribes of Israel. These ten tribes, they become known as Israel specifically. Uh, they're led by Jeroboam to... Uh, live and supposed harmony with God. Jeroboam does some good things. He does some terrible things. Two tribes in the south, they're led by one of Solomon's boys named Rehoboam. Uh, these two tribes are known as Judah. So it gets confusing in your scriptures because you're going to read Israel and Judah. But the tribes split. The people of God split. Ten in the north, Israel, led by one dude. Two in the south, Judah, led by another dude. And we have constant infighting, constant conflict. If you look at the uh, piece of paper that was laying in your seat, we tried to help you with some of this, with just a a little simple timeline to orient you to these these books and the history of God's people. If you notice, you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom with a little squiggly line in between, showing that the people of God are divided walking through these books. After a series of time, something significant happens. God does what he says he's going to do, and he judges the people. He kicks them off the land. This time is known as the exile. It's the big significant mile marker there in the middle. Israel is first. The northern kingdoms, the ten kingdoms, they're destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. A few hundred years later, the Babylonians come in and crush Judah in 587, 586, 587. And these people are deported, living as exiles in the foreign land. And then, fast forward a few years after some time in exile, God raises up a king who allows a small remnant of the people of God to return back to the land and begin to rebuild that which God has established in the first place. So as you look at these 12 books, these prophets as it were, the books can be roughly divided in pre-exile writers, Writers during the exile and those who are writing after the exile. Now look in uh, Obadiah chapter 1. At the outset of this book, we see what will start and frame every 
one of the prophets. These words, thus says the Lord God. This is what the prophets do. They speak on behalf of God. And they speak on behalf of God to the people of God at these varying stages in their history, spread over about 500 years. There's five of them that are called major prophets in your Bibles. These are the big boys, Isaiah, um, Lamentations, Ezekiel. They're called major prophets, not because they're any more significant, but because their writing is a lot longer. And if you've ever read that, you know it to be true, right? And then you have 12 prophets that are called minor prophets, writing during this same span of time. My guess is that the word prophet or prophetic doesn't creep into your language a whole lot for most of you. Um, though I have noticed, for whatever reason, uh, it's, it's found a, a recurrence on my, my crazy Christian radio station in my pickup truck. Uh, songs that are picking up the word prophet or prophetic. And, and often it seems like from the lyrics that what is meant by prophetic is something that's like heavy or weighty or significant or profound. Not so much when we're reading the, the Old Testament prophets. The prophets certainly are communicating something that's weighty and significant and profound. But this is not the weighty, significant, profound stuff that's going to bring you to the edge of your seat in excitement. Throughout the prophets, you're going to see this is like heavy, discouraging. If, if, if the prophets were about to speak in the Old Testament, you're like, oh no, this ain't going to go well. All right? The, the word is significant, it is weighty, uh, it is heavy for us to consider. But we believe, as we saw last week, that, that all Scripture is profitable, Paul's going to say in Second Timothy. And Jesus himself, in Luke 24, is going to take all the law and the prophets, and he's going to say that somehow these point to Jesus. So these voices matter. God in his sovereignty chose to preserve one chapter in the book of Obadiah. And that's significant for us. Let me give you three reasons that I think these voices matter to us. Why do the minor prophets or the prophets in general matter? One, they reveal the nature and consequences of sin. They reveal the nature and consequences of sin. Here, here's the reality. It's good news and bad news. We're not all that creative sinners, Nobody's inventing new ways to disobey God. Uh, the patterns etched in human nature are quite consistent. So the sins we see played out way back in the book of Genesis, guess what? We're doing the same stinking stuff today. So we can see the same patterns and consequences for sin throughout the scriptures. Secondly, they, and this is good news, they demonstrate the consistency of God's love. They demonstrate the consistency of God's love. So although we're not that creative of sinners and we continue to do the same stupid boneheaded things we're going to see over and over again, the consistency of God's love demonstrated in this book. And thirdly, they anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. They reveal the nature and consequences of sin. They demonstrate the consistency of God's love. And they anticipate the coming of of Jesus Christ, and we'll see that all throughout the book of Obadiah. Notice at the end of verse 1, we see this is what the sovereign Lord says, this is what the prophets are doing, they're speaking on behalf, thus says the Lord, and then here we're given a, a significant marker for this book. 
concerning Edom. Uh, concerning Edom. Now, if you were in your small groups this week, I'm going to assume that you spent some time talking about this, but this is a significant fact that changes the shape of how we interpret the book. What is going to come is going to be some really bad news for Edom. And if you don't know who Edom is, you don't know how to interpret the bad news. And in fact, you might get it exactly opposite of the way you ought to interpret this book. So, for example, if somebody came to me and says, said, I have really bad news for that ugly light blue team from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, right? I would be like, yes, this is awesome. You're going to tell me something terrible about the Tar Heels. They're going to get beat or academic probation because they cheat all the time or whatever. I'm going to be like, yes, this is awesome. That same news applied to the Wolfpack, I'm going to be like, boo, right? This is terrible. I don't want to hear this news. This is the exact same thing that happens in the scriptures and where we so often lose it. Because we don't, who's Edom, right? Who's God talking to? Is this thumbs up or is this thumbs down kind of news for the people of God? Look, look at the, the map behind me. You'll notice the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And then this massive surrounding nation on the southern border of the kingdom of Judah. Their southeastern border, uh, descending all the way down to the Dead Sea, about 100 miles uh, southward, is the rule and reign of the people from the kingdom of Edom. Ted read for us this, uh, the story of the origin of this kingdom in the Jacob and Esau story, all the way back in Genesis 25 and Genesis 27. Edom, and throughout this book, we're going to see the, that Obadiah uses different words. He's at times going to say Esau. He's at other times going to refer to a specific location within Edom, Teman. But every one of these descriptors are going to be used to describe the people that descended from Esau. And then we have the people that descended from Judah. The language in the book is going to be Jacob or Jerusalem or Mount Zion all referring to the people that are descendants of Jacob. These long-lost blood relatives that started a struggle way back in Rebekah's womb that has continued for generation of generation of generation of rivalry and trickery. They emerged by the time of Obadiah's writing as Israel, and read there, Israel and Judah's number one enemy. Now, they're not really a threat to them at any time in their history. They're a pretty small and scattered people in some land that's not really ideal, as we'll see. The people of God are on really fertile soil, and they got a ton of people. Edom's in this really rocky terrain that's kind of messed up and broken, and the people are scattered. So they're, they're really not a threat to the people, but they're consistently the dog that's nipping at their heel. And they're emblematic of all the nations who oppose God and oppose God's people. So this kingdom that stands at odds to God, his work and his ways, this is the, the, the object to whom Obadiah is writing or to whom he's prophesying. And this makes his book quite weird from all the other prophets. Most of them, in fact everyone but two, are speaking to the people of God. This one is primarily speaking to the people who aren't of God, to the nation of Edom. And this is what he says. We have heard a report, I'm in verse 2, 
from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you, here referencing Edom, small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. The first 16 verses in the book of Obadiah are going to point out that the nations of this world, all those who stand opposed to God, will ultimately fail. God is in control, and he will surely bring judgment on all of God's enemies. Two reasons why. Notice in verse 3. The first one is their pride. He says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of rocks, in lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Now, what we don't know about the book of Obadiah, if you look back on your timeline again, there's a question mark with the date. Um, Even conservative scholars are really up in the air on when this book is written. Some say before the exile, some say long after the exile. What we know is that it's in a time when the relationship is really out of whack. When it seems like the bad guys are winning and the good guys are losing. And sadly... (laughs) You could pretty much put that on a timeline anywhere within about a 500-year span in the Old Testament. It seems like the bad guys are winning and the good guys are losing. Now, incidentally, as, as an aside, I mean, we have nothing in common with that in our culture, do we? Right? A world where it seems like the bad guys are winning and the good guys are losing? This, again, is an easy parallel to our day. And again, just as an aside, let me, let me caution us and applaud us Uh, At the same time, really thankful that God has positioned us to be alive in a season of political chaos like we are walking through. Uh, I hope you voted yesterday. Um, I think that's a significant act for us as a church to be engaged in those worlds. But I also think it's a significant act for us as a church and for the people of God to learn how to, one, trust God in the midst of a season where it looks like the bad guys are winning and the good guys are losing and not lose our minds in fear and panic. God's in control, he's got this. And secondarily, that we learn how to speak as God's people in winsome and gracious ways, even with people we have deep disagreements with. Uh, We've got to grow in that, honestly, as the people of God, Not, not our church specifically, but more broadly. And I want to exhort us, in a season quite like Obadiah's day, when things seem out of whack, that we engage with wisdom informed by the gospel. We, we purchased two resources for you this week, um, two, two books that we'll have at our bookstore. They're actually up here. Um, this book uh, called Onward is a book written by Russell Moore. Uh, Dr. Moore heads up the Religious, and Ethic, the Religious Liberty and Ethics Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention. He is one of the most gracious uh, spokesmen on behalf of SBC Life. In our day, if you listen to Fox News or CNN, um, there are times when uh, evangelicals, quote fingers, um, speak on our behalf, and I cower in fear 
for what foolishness is getting ready to come out of their mouth, uh, by God's grace, Dr. Moore is not one of those people. Every time he speaks, I am thankful that he is speaking on my behalf. This book, Onward, is a fascinating read in how to engage in a culture where Christianity is increasingly marginalized without just giving up. He challenges us to lean in and work. I, I would exhort you, if you care about those kind of things, and you should, to pick up this book. Uh, this little book is gift book size. It goes uh, in places where gift book size books go. All right, so we can all approach this book. It's great. Uh, written by my PhD mentor, Dr. Bruce Ashford, and one of my peers, uh, Chris, and I can't pronounce his last name. He's got a bunch of P's in it. Uh, this book is called One Nation Under God, and they hold up and take different specific issues that are hot-button issues in our culture, abortion, sexual ethics, economics, immigration, and they show how an evangelical should speak and vote in light of those positions. I commend both of these books to you so that we grow in not having a soundbite faith, but one that's informed by the gospel, and I think that's significant. If you'd like one, they're up here uh, up front after the service, and if you guys buy all those up, we'll order, uh, we'll order a bunch more. So what we see is the same thing going on in our culture that was going on in the culture uh, of Edom. Their pride was actually, it seemed like the bad guys were winning, but in fact, God says, you better, you better watch out. Incidentally, God had given Edom the very land that they, they lived on, that they postured in pride. This is from Deuteronomy 2, verses 1 through 5 describing the travel of the people of God to the promised land. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Don't contend with them. For I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as the sole of your foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. This is fascinating. In light of what he's getting ready to say, that God in history past has said, people, disobedient nation, I'm actually going to give you this land. And Israel, as you pass through, don't fight with them, don't pick a battle, just keep walking. Now the people of God fast forward years, are positioned on this very mountainous terrain, and their pride is attached to their physical location. This mountainous terrain extended about 4,000 to 6,000 feet above the surrounding region. It was protected from Judah north to south with these massive surrounding imposing gorges, gigantic cliffs, terrifying gorges if you've ever watched like the climbing of Everest stories. This is the picture of this land. So it's uh, seemingly impenetrable from outside forces. They also live in an age where they've defended this mountainous terrain with a series of Iron Age fortresses, protecting themselves from all those that live beneath. If you know anything about military strategy, the positions up top are always the ideal positions to pick off those that are beneath. So what it seems is that the people of Edom based on their physical location, say, we're good. Nothing's ever going to happen to us. Incidentally, the word pride is derived from the verb to, to boil up or to seethe. The word's used three times in the story of Jacob and Esau. 
and the change, the birthright selling that happens there. So they're, they're boiling up, they're seething, they're positioned at the top. They've taken the good gift of God of the land, they've used it to bolster their pride, and they're convinced that their cliff dwellings are safe and secure. They say, in arrogance, verse 3, who's going to bring us down? We're good. And as I'm reading this story, I'm picturing God standing off in the corner, listening to the question, who's going to bring us down? I, I will. I, I got this. Your 4,000 feet are nothing for me. Your iron dwellings are nothing for me. If you wonder who's going to bring you down, I've got it. As the Proverbs writer says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. God says, I'm going to bring you down. In verse 7, all your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set up a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and the understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, all Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. He says, I'm, I'm coming, I'm going to get you. You're deceived even by your friends. Ultimately, Edom was deceived because God gave it over to deception. And he says, I'm going to use these peaceful allies around you to destroy you. Why? Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloft, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. The implication of Obadiah's writing is these are the very things that Edom has done. This leads many people to, to, to postulate that perhaps it was a post-exile writing. They've been standing up while Assyria and Babylon have destroyed the people, and they're just mocking them. They're not coming to their aid. They had no sympathy for God's people. They were rejoicing and glad in Judah's distress and calamity. And in fact, it seems from Obadiah's writing that they were actively engaged in looting and blocking the escape routes. They were complicit in the destruction of God's people. And this doesn't go well for the nations because God has particular care, specific care, for his people. He calls in Exodus 19 these people his treasured possession among all the nations. In Zechariah 2.8, thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Like a good parent, God says, you don't mess with my kids. This is not going to go well for you. Even though it seems like you're succeeding, I'm going to cut you off. 
I'm going to cut you off. For the day of the Lord, verse 15, is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is the principle of sowing and reaping in the negative. God says, all those things that you did, I'm going to do to you. Because you don't mess with my kids. And he casts this using typical prophetic language. He says, the day of the Lord is coming. There's a day of the Lord coming when I'm going to judge you. This language is used throughout the prophets to describe a specific time of divine intervention into the natural flow, as it were, of the course of human history. He says, though it seems like things are going this way, I'm going to step into human history and drastically change the scorecard. There are multiple examples of the day of the Lord throughout Scripture. Certainly there is one coming final and future day of the Lord, this miraculous inbreaking of the second coming of Christ, when everything will be made right. But multiple times, like the locust plagues we'll read about next week in the book of Joel, God says, this is a day of the Lord. This is a day of my visitation where I will step into the flow of human history and drastically alter its course. The day of the Lord isn't a gradual, progressive thing like we're walking along and ever so slightly God's bending things, but rather the natural flow is progressing and all of a sudden there's a miraculous intervention of God where everything changes. The scorecard changes. He says, I'm, I'm sending that day is near upon all the nations. And when that day comes, it shall be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Verse 16. For as you have drunk on the holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. This is the, the, the typical illustration. He says, you've been drinking in celebration up on that holy mountain, thinking that nobody's going to pick you off, and you're about to drink something else. It's not going to be the wine of celebration. It's going to be the cup of God's wrath. Be warned, nations. What, what do we know about this day? One, it's coming. This day is coming. It is surely coming to them and to us. Though it appears that all is smooth and, sail and steady, there is a mighty glacier ahead, and that unsinkable ship will sink. Be forewarned, it is coming. Secondly, it's coming to all those who oppose God, to all the nations. He uses the contrast back in verses 5 and 6 of farmers, of gleaners, the picture being uh, that they go out and farmers or gleaners are, are trying to pick from the, from the crops, and even really careful gleaners are going to miss some stuff. They're going to get a lot of it. They're going to get 80 to 90%, but there's still going to be uh, excess strewn on the ground. And God says, not, 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 that's not the way I work. When I come, I'm going to get it all. He's promised throughout the writings that for Israel, there's going to be a remnant. He's always going to protect the people. But when he comes to judge the nations, they ain't going to be a remnant. He judges them in their entirety. God will not miss anything. He'll get them all. He will not leave any. And, thirdly, it is coming to all those who oppose God, and they deserve it. <laughs> they deserve it. 
There is nothing worse than God giving you what you deserve. Everything that they deserve turns on their head. They robbed Judah, they're going to be robbed. They fought Judah, they're going to be crushed. They sought Israel's destruction, they're going to be destroyed. God is going to prove that his kingdom is sovereign over all nations. Psalm 22, 28. For his kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules all over all nations. All the nations are mere pawns in God's redemptive plan. And he's going to prove it. Then verse 17, and this is, this is the significant contrast. And praise God, this is sustained throughout all of the books, all the prophetic witness. Verse 17, 16 verses of doom for Edom. But... In Mount Zion, this is God's people, nation of Judah, God's chosen remnant. He says, in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be called holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. There, there shall be no survivor in the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem shall possess, Serhad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go to Mount Zion and shall rule Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Notice the promise of the blessing to the righteous. He says, you're going to be safe, you're going to be holy, and thirdly, what great language there in verse 17, you're going to possess your own possessions. You're going to possess your own possessions. He lists the locations throughout Edom, and he says to a name, you people of God, you're getting that. You're going to get that, and you're going to get that, and you're going to get that. The recovery of what was rightfully theirs, they're going to get. How? Verse 21 tells us. God's going to raise up saviors. Saviors who shall go up to Mount Zion and rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. He says, saviors are going to come who are going to usher God's remnant, God's chosen people, into the prosperity that he has promised, into safety, into holiness, and into possessing their possessions. So, so what, what's the application then for us? We're not Edom, and most of us are not Judah. So what's the application? If you're here and you're not in Christ, you're unclear about the state of your soul before a holy God, you're not sure that Jesus is your Savior, here's the one singular point of application. Things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem. There is surely a day coming when God will judge those who stand opposed to him, as it's recorded in 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. 
and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You who stand apart from the things of God, either through your active judgment or your passive judgment, scorn the things that he desires for your life, there will be a day coming when that will be exposed. For some of you, in God's grace, that day of the Lord will come this side of eternity. God will bring you to the end of yourself through addiction, through divorce, through struggle and calamity, and will convince you that to stand in your pride opposed to him is the, is the antithesis of the life that he desires for you to live. He will bring you to, an end, to the end of yourself in judgment. And for all of you who are not in Christ, there is a day of the Lord coming at the end of this life. When all things will be exposed and God will pour his wrath out on you. And for that reason, God in his grace allows you to see the testimony of the Edomites so that you might not face the destruction that came upon them, that you could by faith and repentance turn this day and trust in Jesus and be safe from the coming day of the Lord. Christian, the point of application for the non-Christian is things are not as they seem. Even if things are going along great, you're doing really well, there is a day coming. Christian, the point of application for you is exactly the same. Things are not as they seem, praise God. For the non-Christian, things are not as they seem, and this is terribly bad news. A day is coming. Christian, things are not as they seem, and this is gloriously good news. The apparent prosperity of the wicked and the chaos of the world, while it should grip our hearts with remorse and repentance, need not paralyze us in fear because God is ultimately going to make all things right. He will ultimately prevail, and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. It will surely happen. So even in this life, if it appears that you are losing, friend, take heart. If it appears that life is not fair, would you be reminded this morning that fairness is not a Christian virtue this side of eternity? Life is perpetually unfair. There are always going to be struggle, but we can, as Jesus says, take heart. Why? Because he's overcome the world. So if you are limping along, feeling like life has dealt you a bad hand, and you are not sure how you're going to right all the wrongs, adjust the scorecard in your favor, and find victory once again, would you be reminded this morning that that is not up to you to do? You can rest and take a deep breath knowing that God will make all things right. And where does this divine pass happen? Where do non-Christians prove that things aren't as they seem and Christians prove that things aren't as they seem? Where does this pass happen? It happens on the cross. It happens on the cross. 
as Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man, death came by a man, has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then the coming of all those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected to put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. He says, ultimately, on the cross, God has destroyed every enemy, every one that stands opposed. And praise God, note this from Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. By virtue of Christ's work, the one who knew no sin being judged, experiencing drinking, as it were, the cup of God's wrath. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Notice what he says. The Holy Spirit is your seal that you're going to possess your possessions, Christian. In the very same way that God promises in the book of Obadiah that the people will possess their possessions, friends, you will one day surely possess your possessions. The glorious inheritance that God has purposed for all of his children in Christ Jesus. So take heart. Things are not as they seem. We will all limp through this life and one day cross eternity's threshold and possess our possessions. And that gives us hope to face the life that God has before us. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful that we who are in Christ have the promised hope that we will possess our possessions, that you will protect us safe and secure from the wrath of God because that wrath has been fully poured out on the person of Christ. We can find joy in a book like Obadiah knowing that we are safe from the day of the Lord, from the wrath that is to come. And that should bolster our hearts with hope and pride, knowing not that we have anything to boast in in ourselves, but pride in what you have accomplished on our behalf. We are grateful for that. We pray that you would protect us from the type of apathy or fearfulness that doesn't demonstrate that we will one day possess our possessions, that you are working all things together for your good purposes. And even though it seems like in our day that the wicked are winning, 
All of that is mere pawns in your redemptive scheme. You've got it all under control. But God, we, we know that there are those among us this morning and there are those in the nations that stand this day rightfully under your wrath. They're, they're not safe. And this word from Obadiah this morning should fill them with fear, knowing that a day is coming and that day could come quickly. Would you, by your Spirit, remove the scales from their eyes that they would see Jesus clearly and turn to him before it's too late so that they too would be safe, that they would be holy, and that they would possess the possessions that you are holding out for all of your children. As we reflect and stand and sing this morning, we sing to the one who controls the history, controls all of human history, and yet loves us. What a stunning thought. Would you fill us with hope and joy this morning as we sing for Christ's sake? Amen.